Father, I pray that this morning you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would give us complete clarity of mind. God, give us insight and understanding to your word. God, I pray that uh, you would be glorified. And if there's someone who doesn't know you today, that you would draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit. That they would come to know you in a real and personal way. And so, Lord, we give you the praise and the thanksgiving this morning. And thank you in advance for what you are working to accomplish. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I want to attempt to speak to you about uh, probably what some would consider the most controversial subject, uh, or at least the most controversial doctrine in all of the Bible. It's one of those that uh, most pastors don't even want to get into, quite frankly. It's called the doctrine of hell. Uh, I want, as a matter of fact, the topic is, or the title is, Demystifying Hell. And I believe that there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misunderstandings about hell and what it is and if it exists. You know, there are definitely people who don't believe that there is any kind of hell, certainly not in the afterlife, and there are those who uh, are a little bit too excited about others to go there, quite frankly, when you, when you look at life. You know, I always think there, there are two types, or at least three types of pastors, really. There, there's the pastor who can't wait to tell everybody about it and get all excited about hell. I'm worried about that guy, by the way. And then there's the other guy over here who just kind of completely avoids it or doesn't deal with it at all. And the truth of it is, in Scripture, as we will read here in just a moment, a lot of times Scripture gives us a completely different understanding than maybe what we learn from culture or maybe what we learned from certain stories. And so I want you to open your minds this morning and really think about this subject and be willing to receive from Scripture. And also maybe for just a moment, be willing to let go of some of your preconceived ideas and thoughts, uh, regardless of which extreme they may fall under. Uh, As we talk about hell, I think it's important for us to remember, first of all, it's not going to be just a big party uh, where everybody hangs out. It's not a Pantera concert, uh, if you even know who that is, by the way. If you don't, good for you. It's not a place where Satan is on a throne telling everybody what to do. It's not a big barbecue. The reality is, hell is the complete antithesis of God Almighty. It's a place where God does not exist and where His mercy and love and grace do not extend to. That's what hell, in fact, is. As a matter of fact, I'll put it to you this way. If there is a realm, if there is a place which is everything good, everything pure, everything kind, everything of mercy, everything that reflects the grace and the goodness of God, then it stands to reason that there is also a place in which those things do not exist that everything is the antithesis of God Almighty. I want us to understand a couple of terms that I think are really important for us to understand. And so if, if you have something to write on, I would encourage you to actually write these down this morning. Uh, you've, gotten a, you've received a bulletin. Usually there's a little space on there. But I want you to understand these terms because I think they're important when we read through our Bible to kind of gather and assess what is God specifically talking about. And depending on what your translation is, uh, different terminology will be used. But let me give you these. First one you're not going to find in your Bible, but it's a position called progressive revelation. 
progressive revelation. Now, what that means is simply this, that in the beginning of times when the Scripture was given and the prophets were giving the Word of God, uh, there was an understanding, there was a limited understanding of what was being communicated. It was being communicated for their time and somewhat for the future, but they only understood it in the context of which they had. But as history develops, you can begin to see a thread through Scripture of redemption. You can begin to understand the need for a Messiah, a Savior. Of course, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the sacrificial system is offered and given so that man might come into right standing with God. And it was done mainly through animal sacrifice. There were different types of sacrifices, but that was the predominant one. And there was also the large day or the most significant day, the Day of Atonement, in which a ram or lamb was slain for the specific sins of the community. So when we look at that, they would not have understood that one day there would be a Savior, Christ Jesus, who would take the sins of all mankind upon the cross. As revelation, excuse me, as history unfolded, then more revelation was given. And now we can look back and we can see that thread of redemption all throughout the Scripture. We now understand things in a more full, fully lit room, so to speak. There is more light shed to us, and it's because progressively more and more has been revealed. More Bible was written. Of course, in the Old Testament, they started out with the Torah, and then later came the prophets, and then we were given the New Testament, the Gospels, and then the letters of Paul. So we can see how Revelation has progressed. Okay, Does that make sense to you? So I I want to take that same position and apply that to the afterlife. Um, The next word is sheol. It's a Hebrew word. And when you find it, if you have a King James Version, you will see it uh, used almost exclusively in the Old Testament and sometimes even in the New Testament. Uh, In the early writings in the Torah and in Job, you would see this word sheol, and it simply meant that it meant the grave. It meant the afterlife. We don't really see a distinguishing difference between uh, in sheol, between there being a good and a bad, so to speak. So we simply see it as a place of the grave, a, a place of where people went after they died. Now, this is in anticipation of something called the general uh, resurrection, okay? A time when all will come before God Almighty. But at, until that point, uh, Sheol is a place of the afterlife, okay? Later on, as history develops, uh, there becomes more of a distinction in the afterlife. So there's Sheol, and then we see the concept, uh, literally, it, not in the Bible itself until the New Testament, but it probably started about 400 years before Christ uh, in some of the uh, Hebrew writings that we have, the, the mention of the bosom of Abraham. Or sometimes, it, it may, some scholars would even refer to it in the sense of paradise. So the bosom of Abraham, or maybe your translation might use the side of Abraham. So it was a place of favor. It was a place of blessing. And then we see the concept developing of Hades. Hades, okay? Hades is the other side of the realm of Sheol, so to speak. So you've got the bosom of Abraham, and then you have Hades, those who did not profess Yahweh, those who were unrighteous, so to speak. So you've got those two sides, and we see this progressively developing until we get to uh, the day of Jesus, the time of Jesus. Now, One of the questions sometimes people will ask me, they'll go, uh, do you believe that hell is a literal fire and that people burn? And and I would say, no, I actually believe that's probably metaphoric, but I think it's probably something worse. 
Okay, so uh, you're, you're all encouraged at first, but then nevertheless, that is because Jesus is using words that he is using to describe a realm and a place that you can't fully understand on earth. Okay, so I believe in hell specifically because of this, because God's word says, but also because Jesus talks more about it than anybody else. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks more about it than anybody else in the New Testament combined than all those other other mentions in the New Testament combined. So Jesus refers to it about 13 or 14 times. Uh, so Jesus definitely make, makes mention of hell. Now, the word that we have for hell, typically when Jesus refers to it, is the word Gehenna. Now, let me give you a little biblical background on the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna comes from the Valley of Ben-Hinnomon, okay? And the Valley of Ben-Hinnomon, if you went back into Jeremiah and into Second Kings, you would see the story of how... Uh, the Canaanite, Canaanite worshipers would bring uh, child sacrifice to the valley of Ben-Hinnomon to their god Molech. Okay? And the fires were always burning and they would literally cast children in there as a, uh, an offer of sacrifice. God has some very strong judgment upon two of the kings of Israel and the nation of Israel because they actually used their own sons as an act of worship to the god Molech in the valley of uh, what we call now Gehenna of Ben-Hinnomon, okay? So when Josiah comes on, he reforms things, and basically that is uh, basically just destroyed, and that valley is left. But it's always a symbol of that which is most wicked and despicable, the valley of uh, Ben-Hinnomon. And later on, the Aramaic word is this, Gehenna. Gehenna. It was a place right outside of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, you see the picture. That's modern day. That's what it looks like right now. But it's outside of Jerusalem. And uh, for really, literally thousands of years, it was used as a colossal garbage dump. And it's where you would take all your trash. And it's also there was a pit there in Gehenna um, where they would throw dead bodies, bodies of dead carcasses of animals, of criminals, and of those who had not been claimed. So uh, it was kind of the place that a Jew would least like to be associated with and certainly would never want to go, Gehenna. It was a place where the, the, where the smell was strong and the worm dieth not. Uh, you even see that term sometimes used in Scripture. And there's the picture. It was a real place. And so when Jesus says Gehenna, everybody would have known exactly what He's talking about. It is a strong illustration of a place that you do not want to be. A good Jew would not want to even enter into that area and certainly would not have wanted to touch a body because they would have been considered unclean. It was the place of refuse. It was the most disgusting place known to a Jew, Gehenna. So there's the picture, and that's the word that Jesus will use almost exclusively to describe hell. Okay. Now, with that understanding, we also recognize that a lot of Scripture is apocalyptic. And some scripture is not just apocalyptic. We're talking about apocalyptic. It is a symbol or a picture of the future. Now, we certainly see that in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. I'm not going to read it in the interest of time. Also in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we also see that fire is used there as analogy. We see the... That it's described as having seven. God is described as having seven spirits. We would all suggest and all probably agree that that's apocalyptic. Okay, so that is symbolic. It is a picture. Now, what does it mean to be literal? Then, well, when Scripture is not uh, using metaphors or apocalyptic language, 
then we would want to take it as literal as possible. What does that mean? Well, to take it literally, it is literal in the sense of which it was written, for the purpose of which it was intended. Okay, But we're all going to agree that certain times in Scripture, Jesus certainly and all of, uh, all of the writers will use metaphors. Okay, Let me give you some examples of metaphors that are used in the Bible that I think we would all agree uh, those are metaphors. And just one second, and I'll grab it here for you, and I'll give, you, give those to you. Okay. Luke 9:60. Jesus said, "Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God." There's a metaphor. There's hyperbole. Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus again is giving a description. He is giving a metaphor so people would have understood the intensity and the seriousness of his claim. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. We hope this is not literal. I, I certainly believe it's not. I don't know anybody that would take this literal, or at least anybody that would actually practice. If your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to burn in hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Hyperbole. Let me say, Jesus is communicating, take whatever measures you need to take to deal with your sin, to deal with your issues. So we see that the Bible uses hyperbole. We see that the Bible uses metaphors. Let's continue on with our text here, and I want us to look um, at two passages very briefly. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Matthew, to Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, Matthew 13, verse 47, and let's read this passage, and then I want to simply share the story of Matthew 22, verse 1 through 14. First with Matthew 13, verse 47 through 50, Jesus is speaking here, and He says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then in Matthew chapter 22, verse 1 through 14, if you want to read this later, I encourage you to, but let me tell you the story real briefly. Jesus uses another illustration, another story He gives. And He talks about the wedding banquet, the wedding feast and how those are invited who knew of the king and had heard his decrees. And so he invites them to come, but many don't come. Matter of fact, some simply um, reject those who bring the message, and some of those messengers were even killed. And so he's outraged. And so there's a stiff penalty uh, that they are killed for that. And then uh, he says, here's what I want you to do. Since they are not accepting me, I want you to go into the highways and the byways, and I want you to invite anyone who would like to come. Everyone that you meet, let them come to my banquet. Let them come to my feast. And so that's exactly what is done. An invitation is extended to come to the great banquet. And so when they come to the banquet, the typical custom would be this, that they would be getting given a wedding garment. And the wedding garment would be much like what we do today when we go to a wedding. We put on a coat and tie or maybe even a tuxedo, but except that it would be given by the honored guest. 
and it would be placed upon you, and everyone would be in what we might think of today as formal attire. So everyone is given this at uh, the banquet. And so uh, they all come, but there's one individual who decides, I'm not going to wear that. I'm not going to partake of that garment. I'm just going to wear my own clothes. I'm just going to go about it in my own image. I'm not interested in that. And he probably thinks, well, the king will never see me. But in fact, the king does see him. And the king says, friend, why are you not wearing the wedding garment? And he has no answer. So the Bible tells us that he says, take this man and bind him and throw him into the streets where there will be gnashing and will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture there that's given to us is that uh, they were all invited, and, but there was one who decided to come on his own righteousness. He wouldn't take the righteousness of Christ upon him. He decided to do it on his own merits. He decided to be in control, but maybe just come and mooch off the table a little bit, so to speak. And there's the picture that's given. Jesus used, uses both of these analogies as a picture of the afterlight of, of a picture of the decisions that we must make to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. When we see the word fire used, it's used in many different instances in Scripture. Uh, we have numerous accounts. We see uh, the Scripture using mountains of fire, rivers of fire, thrones of fire, lashes of fire. Uh, we see this non-literal uh, language used. We also see God being described as a consuming fire in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It is a picture of the most powerful and the most intense metaphor that they could have used at that, in that day and time. We also see it used in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 as sexual desire, and we see it used in James chapter 3 as a, a metaphor for the tongue. We see these used and we have to recognize that Jesus had a strong sense of an understanding of what hell meant, what it meant to be completely separated from God. And you may ask this question, well, why is there a hell? Well, as we stated earlier, if there's a place in which God dwells in perfection, in which there is no sin in which everything is as it should be, then there must be a place where things are not as they should be. If we've been given the freedom to choose, then that must be a reality. The real truth of it is, hell, I believe, is when we are allowed to uh, do what I would call consume our own flesh, where we are allowed to separate from God and choose otherwise to follow our own selfish addictions. Now, we all in here know uh, people who are at least have known someone or who knows someone who has, has an addiction or has had an addiction. And what is an addiction? Addiction to whether it be drugs or sex or alcohol, food, whatever our addiction is, what happens in that addiction? Well, it usually starts off with denial. I'm fine. It's okay. I don't have a problem. It's all good. And you continue in it. And, and then after that, after the denial, the next phase that usually comes about in folks is this, is isolation. You start to withdraw from people who maybe suspect or your concern might find out or they might know. People that you once had a good relationship with, you begin to isolate yourself. And then the next step is usually disintegration. I remember when I was uh, in college, I went on this mission trip to, to Chicago, downtown Chicago, and I stayed 
for a couple weeks at a place called Pacific uh, Garden Mission. And it's basically a, a place for the homeless and those who uh, don't have a place to live, those who do not have food. And so it's kind of a homeless shelter slash soup kitchen. And what they do is they, they have the folks, anybody that wants to come in, you can come in. And if you listen to a, a service, then you, you get a meal. And they do three of those. And you do all three of them, then you get a place to stay for the night. So basically you can have your meals and a place to sleep at night. Uh, if you just go to those three services that they offer, that's all that they really require or ask of you. What was interesting when I got there, I'll never forget, there were, uh, there were a couple guys that were outside sleeping outside of the, of the mission. And, I mean, it was cold. For me, it was cold. I mean, I was from Louisiana. I was, when it gets 60, I kind of get cool. And it's probably about 38, 39, 40 degrees. The wind's blowing in Chicago like it always seems to be. And I'm seeing these guys out there, and they're asleep on the concrete sidewalk outside of the mission. And I go up to one of the guys that work, and I, go, I said, can we bring those guys in? He said, they can come in, but they don't want to come in. I go, what do you mean they don't want to come in? It's freezing out there. He goes, I'm telling you, they're not going to want to come in. He's lazy. So I, I go out there, and I, I try to get one of these guys. I go, um, I said, hey, you want to come in? He goes, you got $2? I said, why don't you just come on in? Um, you can come in here and sleep, and they'll have food for you in the morning. He goes, I don't want to go in there, man. I go, why not? He goes, I don't want to hear all that. I don't want to hear that. You got $2? He just kept asking, you got $2? And I don't get it. No, it, it it's warm in there. <laughs> There's a place to sleep. There's donuts. You got to come in here, man. This is where you want to be. No, I want to stay out here. He was in his addiction. He just kept asking me for $2. And, of course, I'm so stupid, I give him $2 finally. And he takes off to wherever he takes off to with his $2. It's a picture of someone who's addicted who is in denial, in isolation, and has begun to disintegrate to the point they don't even recognize it. They're starting to give up their health. It's, it's kind of insanity. There's a picture of hell right there for us, guys, that you make that choice to reject God, and I will be the ruler of my life. There's the picture right there that God allows us to say, you know what, I don't want you. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome to go your own way. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, God cannot condone evil or forgive those who do not want forgiveness. Lost souls eventually have their wish to live holy in self and make the best of what they can find there. And what they find there is hell itself. The second point is the justice and the holiness of God. The justice and the holiness of God demands that there be a hell. You know, I think as we read that passage earlier, a lot of times people have this picture in their mind that, that um, God is so mad that we didn't accept Him and that you know God has thrown people into the pit of hell and they're trying to climb out. And He's going, no, no, you stay in there because you didn't accept Me. So you stay in there. That's where you belong. Shame, shame on you. I don't think that's God's heart at all. Matter of fact, as we were reading uh, the earlier passage, turn back with me to Luke chapter 16. You know, and there's, there's been debate forever whether this is a metaphor or a parable or whether this is a real story. It is the only instance in which Jesus uses a specific name. But as we were reading that, let me tell you why I don't think that. First of all, it says the rich man was dressed in purple and fine living and lived a luxury every day. His identity, his God was his wealth, was his stuff. At the gate, there was a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with swords. And remember, Jesus is speaking to a population who believes that if you're good, God blesses you and God's all over you and you get good things. And if you're bad, then you're going to get cursed and you're going to be a beggar. And so 
he's basically turning that whole mentality on its head. And he says this. He says, Lazarus, at the time Lazarus dies, the beggar dies, and then the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. We talked about what that was earlier. The rich man died and was buried. And in hell, when he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away by Lazarus' side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in cool water and bring it to me because I'm in agony in this fire. Isn't it interesting that he's not saying, get me out, or I believe he's going. He's still got that old mindset. He's still ordering Lazarus around. Hey, tell Lazarus to come down here and bring me some water. He's not even trying to get out. He's trying to get Lazarus to come in. I mean, he's still got that mindset that he's in control, that it'll be his way. And he continues on. He says, but Abraham replied, son, there's that word son. It's one of deep sympathy. It's one of connection. It's one of love. You see that spirit that he's given to him? It's not an angry God. It's not a God who's offended, so to speak. It's one who says, son, it's a heartfelt reply. Remember in your lifetime you received the good things? That's all you wanted. That's, that's where you put all your stock. That was your life. That was your God. And Lazarus received bad things. Life didn't go well. And apparently all he had was a faith in God. But now he's comforted and you're in agony. And besides all this, there's a great gulf or great chasm between us that's fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also find this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Word of God. They have the Old Testament. They've heard the prophecies. They know the truth. And he says, Nay, Father Abraham. He says, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now get the picture right here. Jesus is giving this story. He is giving this parable. He's giving this picture and probably in less than a year he will die upon a cross and what will happen? He will be buried and then he'll rise again. So you see the picture that's occurring? Jesus is speaking specifically to those who will influence his death and his crucifixion. And he's speaking and he's giving the message right here and then he says, if they don't listen to the Word of God, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The justice and holiness of God demands that sin be dealt with, that sin not go on, that it not participate in its realm. As a matter of fact, that justice be done. Let me give you a good picture. Uh, Amir Shlovov, who is a professor at Yale University, as a matter of fact, a professor of theology, uh, says it this way. Um, he grew up in Croatia and witnessed firsthand uh, the Balkan uh, just harassity or uh, atrocities, uh, the horror of what occurred. And, and he says it like this. He says, you know what? Those people who don't believe in a hell, don't believe in the justice of God, he said there is no other reason not to engage in retaliation. There's not any other reason not to engage in uh, revenge. If you think after you've watched your home burned, your wife raped, and your children killed... Why would you not? Why would you not seek revenge? Why would you not seek retaliation if you think there's nothing else? That this is it. This world's it and it's just over. 
He said, it's the only thing that gives me hope that the justice of God will transpire, if not here, within another life, within the next world. He said, that is the comfort. He said, that's the kind of God I want to worship, that all atrocities will eventually be dealt with fairly and honestly. The justice and the holiness of God demands it. And then we also see, number three, the love and the freedom of man. The love and the freedom of man. G.K. Chesterton said it like this, Hell is a great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. What is hell? The complete separation from God. Hell is the separation of God Almighty. Everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that is right to a realm where God no longer exercises any influence or restraint over evil, over selfishness. As John Milton said it, most men would say this, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. When we make that choice, we choose hell. We choose to be the master of our soul, as Timothy McVeigh so eloquently quoted As we see this picture, this man never once says, I believe. God, forgive me. I was wrong. He seems content to be where he is and simply lodge accusations and to give advice and to give commands and requests. As Lewis said, there's only two types of people in the world. One that says, Lord, Thy will be done. And the other that says, My will be done forever. Thy will be done or My will be done. So what changes us? What would make us want to embrace Christ? Is it the fear of hell? I don't think so. I don't think the fear of hell really brings us into an authentic relationship with Christ. I think it's the love of God when we fully understand it. When we understand Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him, speaking of Christ, and cause Him to suffer. And through Him the Lord makes His life a guilt offering. There's the picture right there. Let me, let me give you a, a final picture that I think really kind of helps us to understand the love of Christ. You know, I've got a I've got a really good neighbor that I enjoy that uh, lives next to me, and he's always helping and doing things for me, and I, I respect him, just think the world of him. But you know what? I would never worship him. <laughs> I would never glorify him. But let me say this: if one day I was in my home and one night, and our home caught on fire, and my family was in there, and he and his son they came and they began to take us out one by one, wake us up and carry us out if he was injured in the process, and if he got all my family out, but yet his son died trying to save me, rescue me, it would transform the way that I see him, the way that I understand him. I would always have an eternal indebtedness to him. I would recognize there's nothing I could ever do to pay for what he did. There's no way I could ever honor him enough. There's a picture right there of what God has done for us as He put Jesus upon the cross. And all of our sins were nailed to that cross. The hell of our life and the hell to come was nailed to the cross when God isolated Himself from Jesus Christ. When God denied Him 
His presence. And the horror of hell engrafted Jesus Christ upon the cross as He took all of our sin upon Him. What a great picture of love. What a great debt that was paid for all who will receive it and accept it. There's the picture. God desires that no one go to hell, the Bible tells us in Second Peter. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's the picture. But if you so choose to go that path, if you so choose to reject God and to make yourself the Lord of your life and the Lord of your future, then that's what you shall choose. That's why I believe strongly in the doctrine of hell. What about you this morning? Have you ever received that grace and that forgiveness? That you don't have to earn it or deserve it, but that Christ has taken it upon Him in fullness. The full penalty of sin. That justice might be done through Him. Grace might be granted through His death and crucifixion. I invite you to receive of that loving gift today. Let's pray. Father, thank You that while we were yet sinners, You died for us. Thank You, God, that You uh, offer grace, mercy, and salvation to all who would come and receive of it. And Lord, it's only when we make the choice to reject You and to be our own God, to be our own Master, to enter into that realm where we think we can be in control, where we will not be tied to You or indebted to You, God, I pray that this morning You would open the eyes of our heart that we might receive of Your grace and a love that transforms our lives as we see Your goodness, Your mercy, Your holiness. If there's one that has not received You today, Lord, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit. Amen.